Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this podcast, indeed the next two episodes, we're talking with an expert about rheumatology in the community. Musculoskeletal disorders are a common cause of long-term disability and are estimated to make up about 15% of the workload of general practitioners. Joint pain specifically is also extremely common, especially as one ages. In one national survey, a third of adults reported having a joint pain within the past 30 days. Knee pain was the most common complaint, followed by shoulder and hip pain. Epidemiological studies suggest that there is a large reservoir of patients with significant musculoskeletal disorders who don't ever consult with health services. This contribute to a underlying community malaise and common problems such as soft tissue pain, back pain and minor arthritis may often go untreated in the community. When such patients do present in primary practice, the practitioner must remain alert to the possibility such presentations could also reflect an emerging more serious rheumatic or non-rheumatic condition. So the practice of rheumatologic medicine embraces a wide range of conditions, making this field of medicine incredibly interesting. For apart from wear and tear osteoarthritis, which is the most common type of arthritis, there are the inflammatory autoimmune conditions to consider, such as rheumatoid, ankylosing spondylitis and lupus, for example, crystal arthropathies, and then the very large group of strains, sprains, other injuries, and fibromyalgia, which can all be expected as clinical problems to be managed in primary practice. There are an array of clinical approaches to management, including splinting and bandaging, topical therapies, weight loss where appropriate, exercise, stretching, physical therapy, a host of medications ranging from anti-inflammatories and simple pain relief to disease-modifying agents including oral steroids, immunosuppressants, biologic therapies and small molecules, the use of antidepressants, steroid injections into the joint, platelet-rich plasma therapy injections and joint replacement, all falling under the realm of joint counselling. Dr. Mertzebeg is a general physician with an interest in rheumatological diseases and he has a busy medical practice extending across metropolitan and rural communities. It was a great privilege to have this conversation with Mertzer across two episodes, embracing a practical approach to inflammatory and non-inflammatory joint disease and joint counselling, as well as providing practical tips for the management of fibromyalgia. Please welcome Dr. Mertzer Bay. Dr. Mitzabek, thank you for coming tonight to uh, join me on Everyday Medicine. It's great to have you as a guest. Uh, you've been helping me with all my referrals for such a long time. You know, it's a great honour to have you here, Mitzabek. And we're going to be talking about, um, you know, all things arthritis and, and joints and joint counselling in a little while, which I think will be very helpful for the listeners. Mitzabek, tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey into medicine. Luke, thank you very much for inviting, and uh, I'm a very big fan of your show. I think uh, you've had covered very interesting topics, particularly during the COVID time, and you had a very, very interesting, so it's very, been very useful. So I actually did my medicine from um, University of Melbourne in 2004. I was an overseas student. Uh, my parents are Pakistani, but I was born in the Middle East in Oman. Mm. So after finishing medicine, I continued on my training. I started off at Peninsula Health. I did a few years of BPT there, and then I moved on to Eastern Health. I've always been very interested in multi-organ disease rather than organ-specific disease, which is why I think I ended up in doing general medicine. Yeah, And I think my sort of um, journey to interest in joints happened when, when you do your College of Physicians training, you need to do non-gen med specialty years. 
So the non-gen med years I did was cardiology and rheumatology. And it was like a spark when I was doing the rheumatology clinics. It was very fascinating, so interesting seeing lupus. and But it's a little bit beyond that. It's all about the patient. So not all patients have interesting illnesses like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and have in- very interesting pathology. But a lot of patients just have pain and they want answers. Yes. So as I became a general physician, I started my work at Warrigal Hospital, which is now my public appointment. I started uh, clinics with the interest of rheumatology and it sort of started to grow from there. Um, and You've now got a, very big, a very big catchment around that rural area too. Very big catchment. And in that area, there is, uh, other than Anthony Boss and Tim Woodruff, there is no other rheumatologist out there, as far as I know. There may be others, but I haven't come across anybody else. And you've got farmers working themselves to the bone. Oh, so hardworking people, and they were they will burn through their joints. It's a big problem, isn't it, joint pain? Everyone gets some degree of joint pain. Yes. Um, and, and as you say, maybe it's not always managed, perhaps to the patient's satisfaction. And I, I also think that patients are inclined to develop pains to some degree because they don't do much remedial work on their, on their, um, on their posture, remedial work on their muscles. They perhaps develop bad biomechanics. Maybe we've always had bad biomechanics and joints are being pulled in one way or another. I know from my personal experience, if I'm doing a bit of exercise, I get sore in my joints, my muscles. But if I get on the roller, roll them out, get a, a little deep tissue massage, I feel enormously better. Um, but, you know, it's a very, very big problem. How do you approach it? You, what In your own mind, someone walks in, they've got joint discomfort, they're sitting down in the chair having a bit of a discussion with you. How do you approach uh, this, this very broad subject, let's say? So the first thing I probably would look at is the age of the patient. And that sort of tells me with which, what's the probability going to be. The older the patient, um, the most likely we're going to be dealing with mechanical arthritis. Yes. The younger the patient is going to be probably inflammatory arthritis. So when I go through the patient history, the first thing I look at is the age of the young, you know, 30-year-old 30, 30 coming with stiffness, has a rheumatism flavor to it compared to, you know, a 70, 80-year-old coming with a lot of severe pains in the lower back. Yes. So that's probably the biggest challenge for me to write from the start, because it's sort of an algorithm approach where you're trying to figure out, is this joint inflammatory or is it just a mechanical joint? Mm. And the first probably 10, 15 minutes of my consultation, the series of questions I ask them, in the back of my mind, that's what I'm trying to identify because the towards the end of the consultation that I'm deciding, am I going to just give them pain relief and physio or am I going to talk about some of the anti-rheumatoid drugs? Mm. So, so if I have somebody, we can, we can, we can probably talk about hand arthritis, which, yes. which you can have in mechanical arthritis or you can have uh, inflammatory arthritis. And even young people can get a degree of mechanical arthritis and it could be the other way around. You can have an older person, maybe in their 60s, 70s, have, you know, stiffness in the morning at suggestive of rheumatoid. So that makes it a little bit more tricky. Yes. So my first approach always has been to ask them, how do you wake up in the morning? And the morning stiffness is probably what really makes, you know, makes, uh, gives you a sense of direction of what sort of joint inflammation they would have. And the Sometimes when they do the blood test with the GPs, they may have completely normal blood results. So the GP may send in with just joint pains for investigation. Even if we probably will dwell into the investigation a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. But I was just going to say, even if you have normal results, it doesn't necessarily mean that it may not be rheumatoid. 
So anyway, starting off with clinical history, I would say, well, if there's stiffness in the morning, you know, does the stiffness improve as the, as the day progresses? And how debilitated are they with their pains? Do they, you know, do they drop things? Are there signs of hand weakness? Is there swelling? The, the traditional questions that we probably all are aware of and from medical school. And then there's also the location of where, which joints are involved. That's also very important. Yes. So a lot of people actually come with the base of their thumb pain, which we call the CMC joint, carpal metacarpal joints, or the, the tips, the most distal joints in the hands. So they are called the DIP joints. Mm. So they are typically osteoarthritic in nature, um, whereas the more inflammatory joints are generally in the wrists, in the knuckles. And just, just telling them about that, that look, the location where you've got the pains are likely osteoarthritic. Yeah. Um, uh, rather than uh, inflammatory. And that also gives them a sense of uh, understanding of what's going on in their own hands. So that's probably the history side of things. So, but I would say particularly asking what what's happening in the morning is probably the most relevant and which which joint in particular is affected. Okay. This also is, tells me that this is going to be likely inflammatory or is it going to be uh, mechanical in nature? And then obviously, when we move on to investigations, now the investigations can be misleading. You can have completely normal and probably see maybe in, you've got a few Crohn's or inflammatory bowels with, mm. with normal, relatively normal inflammatory markers, but still can have disease activity. Yes. And it's, I think it's a similar concept here. In fact, there's some rheumatoid arthritis patients where it just, takes, it just takes a few seconds to diagnose. And as soon as they come to your clinic, you look at their hands, they're telling you the stiffness, they're symmetrical. They go, well, this is going to be rheumatoid. Despite having normal blood tests. And when I say normal blood tests, we're talking about inflammatory markers, so ESR and CRP. The autoimmune antibodies, particularly the CCP and the rheumatoid factor, they don't have to be positive. So they can be, neg they can be negative. When they're positive, it probably gives you a sense that the, the, the degree of inflammation or the degree of rheumatoid arthritis they're going to have is going to be fairly aggressive. And often these are the patients that I'm thinking about they probably need a biological referral at some yes. stage. Yes. But I still do the initial workup. And uh, we are, as a general physician, I can still prescribe methotrexate and plaquenil and sulfazalazine. So that's, that's like a very general overview. Are there situations in which you might look at the joint and think, you know, I'm going to have to take a little bit of liquid out of that joint. I might do a little aspiration to, to assist in the diagnosis. Or is that something that you don't really do very much these days? That's, and if you think it's an infected joint, that's a different matter, I guess. If it's a paralent arthropathy, that's a different thing. But Absolutely. Look, um, they, if I am suspicious that someone's got gout, it's always very nice to get a fluid sample in, yes. um, to, to get a fluid sample to confirm that, yes, they do have gout. Yes, because sometimes they come with a, a a monoarticular arthritis, so just one ankle pain or one knee pain. Yes, I think it's sort of trying to figure out. Well, you know, it's stiff and inflammatory markers are high. And again, it's all about the pathway you're going to choose after that. Am I going to call it gout or, yes. and go down the gout pathway, or am I, should I, you know, call it a and maybe it could still be a inflammatory arthritis affecting just the mm -hmm. one track. Yeah, particularly yeah. someone who's got a history of psoriasis, then uh, they, you don't necessarily need to need to have uh, cemetery. Yes. So joint aspiration in this situations, I would I would feel would be useful if there is to confirm it's gout. Then you can just treat it that way. There are some situations, particularly 
of um, finger swellings. I've actually, I've actually asked one of the surgeons to do a synovial biopsy because it was just so hard. The, the difficulty with prednisolone is prednisolone, when as soon as you give somebody prednisolone, it will just treat and it will not differentiate. Mm. And, and the other trouble with the tri- prednisolone is it has a euphoria effect. So it may not be inflammatory <laughs> at all. <laughs> it may just be osteoarthritis or maybe they've got a, uh, and it's just helping their mood or making them feel better. And they feel convinced that it's actually helping them. <laughs> so again, when it gets really tricky, yes, we, not only do the fluid aspirate, you can even do a synovial biopsy. Yes. Uh, it's a relatively safe procedure. Uh, and that way you can get a, some sense of direction of, again, what would be going inside the joint. Do, do you have to have uh, a, like a clinical evidence of there being fluid in that joint for you to do an aspirate? It, or c- can you do an aspirate even when you, you may not be really... You, you know, It'll be really hard because the joint fluid itself is very viscous. So if you have a, a native knee, which is not really inflamed, and you try to aspirate, it's a very thick gel, right. the, knee, the knee fluid. So you may, right. not, you may not be able to aspirate really easily. Yes. When it's inflamed, it's actually very liquid because inflammation is actually water. Yes. And it actually changes the consistency of the, of yes. the joint fluid inside, inside your knee, for example. And it's very easy to aspirate. It's just sometimes you don't even, need, don't even need to pull. You just put the needle in and it just starts to flow out because yes. it's so liquid inside but if it's native it will be very hard so do you tend to do the aspirations yourself or do you do only when they're inpatient so if they're inpatient in the ward a lot easier done just from you know the setup and the time time constraints point of view i i did used to do it initially but then i eventually i thought look it might be easier to just get it done under radiology which is just across the room yes okay so we'll we'll take some fluid if we're if you know if there's an obvious effusion it's 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 pretty uh, clear that we could take some liquid from that joint when we think maybe it's gout we want to try and resolve that and then there's that question about could it be an effective arthritis we might we might yeah. of course in that case you're going to take a, a sample and have that analysed I guess there are lots of other things that maybe guide you toward the arthritis if you know there'll, there'll be situations I suppose where patients have not been diagnosed before but they come in and they may have some gouty toe fi somewhere or they may have Yes. And have nodules and and the, the, which may be gouty or it might point you towards rheumatoid or it might be rash that makes you think of lupus. Is that oh, like yeah. is it common for you to see that or you know, picking nails in psoriasis? Do you get? Oh yes, yes, yes. So we always, I always do. We always should be asking for extra articular features. Yes. So things like history of psoriasis, and you know they may not often tell you until you ask them. Yeah. Then you go, oh yeah, by the way, I've got a patch on my elbow. Yeah. Then you go. Yeah. Sometimes you go bingo, you know, that <laughs> sort of makes sense. It's nice to have everything packaged uh, together. Then you ask for other, I normally just, you know, ask the, go through the lupus criteria. So you probably ask them like, do you have skin rash in the sun? Do you have photosensitive, you know, do you have Raynaud's phenomenon? Yes. You've, they may not understand what Raynaud's is. So you can ask them, do your fingers turn white in the cold yes. weather? Yes. Or rash on the face or rash on your body? Um, you know, dryness in the eye, dryness in the mouth. So when you sort of go through that criteria, then you'll be surprised. A lot of people may say yes, yes, yes to a few of those uh, questions. And then again, then you probably think, well, maybe this is more inflammatory arthritis because you've got so many other autoimmune features. Uh, What about, you know, other sorts of investigations? We talked there about aspiration, about some lab tests that you do. Um, X-rays, when do you start X-raying joints? And is it helpful to have X-rays done by family practitioners? X-ray as a general... Yeah. So x-rays, so doing the x-rays, we need to realize when we are 
putting in investigations? What are we asking the radiologist? So in the x-ray, you will see the bones really well. But And that's useful if you're looking for just osteoarthritis. When you're looking at a inflammatory arthritis, so you, you're looking for swelling. You're looking for, you know, synovial um, hyperemia. You're looking for inflammation in the tendons. So, for example, if the patient's coming with wrist pain, knuckle pain, you can mention that. And I think it's very important to put some keywords for the radiologist. So I always put in curry inflammatory arthritis. So they will be looking actively for, you know, uh, inflammation within the joints. I mean, I could do an ultrasound and ask the radiologist, is there carpal tunnel syndrome? So they can, again, turn around with the uh, look at the median nerves to see if there's any median nerve irritation. The ultrasound is a very useful tool, very cheap, very useful tool, and readily available. So even if, uh, you know, if there's somebody in the country who doesn't have access to MRI or bone scan, uh, can be looked at, can use this very useful uh, investigation tool to, again, differentiate, are we looking at an osteoarthritic picture or are we looking at an inflammatory arthritic mm-hmm. picture? It, then, then, in, then investigations can get more complex. Then, you know, obviously we've got the MRI, which is uh, a lot more sensitive uh, compared to ultrasound. The problem with the ultrasound is it is technician dependent. So the technician need to have needs to have good images of the joints. So if it's a very obvious ultrasound, you know, if it's a very obvious rheumatoid arthritis, for example, you know, the ultrasound will be will definitely pick it up. But if it's a very subtle inflammatory arthritis and the ultrasound may miss it, in which case it may be technician dependent and you may need um, an, a, something like MRI. And, but I would always do that if I'm really, really suspicious that maybe we are missing something here. Um, then MRI would be one way. The other advantage of the MRI is at the same time, you can look at the bones. You can look at early erosions of the bone that you can't really see on the x-ray. You can look at the tendons. And then again, at the same time, they can look at the median nerves at the same time for you. So they can give you a very nice holistic picture of what's going on in the hands, uh, which is which would probably bring me to bone scans. Yes. So bone scan is also relatively useful. If I, if I had somebody who had multiple joints involved, so there's shoulders, wrists, knees, ankles, hips, you can't do MRI of every single joint in the body. <laughs> so it's actually useful to do a bone scan because you can cover such a large area and actually just see, all right, so where are the inflammatory joints that are picking up? Again, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not a very big fan of doing bone scans myself. Um, compared to an MRI, because again, you would miss out the tendons and you may miss out the nerves that you would see on the MRI, but you will miss out on the bone scan. And again, if you are seeing someone with multiple joint pains, just on the clinical history, you will get an idea that this is probably going to be inflammatory or um, mechanical in nature. When you're working them up with the lab, the lab tests, we talked before about uh, doing inflammatory tests, which may or may not be discriminatory. They may be normal despite inflammation. We've talked about rheumatoid factors, anti-CCP. Do, do you, would you do a, a serum, do you normally in a panel of tests? I'm just curious to know what else you would order. Do you, do you normally throw in a serum urate, iron and ferritin, yes. in case you're missing hemochromatosis uh, yes. and you've got pseudo gout? What, what, what sort of things, what, what do you normally write in your blood request? So normally when I'm seeing that for the first time, and if it's not already done, I would almost always do a CCP rheumatoid factor. Yes. ANA. Yes. And I'll probably stop at an ENA. Okay. I, I probably would not go onto double standard DNA or a C3, C4 complements 
unless I, I'm very suspicious that they've got lupus. Yes. I would, yes, and, and, and uric acid is also useful, but then uric acid can throw you off a little bit too. But it's, I think it's always, always helpful to know what the uric acid levels are doing. The one blood test that often gets missed is anchor. So it's also important to know, yes, anchor can cause vasculitis, but it can cause joint pains too. So you can have stiffness in the joints um, and issues like that, stiffness in the joints in particular uh, with anchor associated conditions. Okay. And the other thing that I always, almost always do look is I always check the urine uh, in my first consultation too. Check the urine ACR and check for urine casts. The problem with the urine is they tend to be very silent. So joint pains and everything, pretty much every other organs, they expose themselves really quickly. So you've got joint pains, it shows. You've got skin rash, it shows. Yes. You've got, you know, diarrhea, abdominal pain. Um, they all show really well. Cardiac involvement, lung involvement, people have shortness of breath. But I have found that you can have a critical amount of renal involvement uh, and, a, and patient may be asymptomatic. So that's why when I see them the first time, I try to get that out of the way too, to make sure that they don't have any profound nephropathy or glomerulonephritis. Okay. Okay, so you, your your workup is looking at it, it mechanical versus inflammatory, and you've pretty much excluded, uh, let's say, infective arthritis. Let's suppose you've you've come to the conclusion that it's predominantly well, not predominant, that it is just mechanical. It's a mechanical um, uh, arthropathy that they have. What's your approach then to management? How do you manage that patient? So I tell the patients that is once I have, I'm fairly convinced that this is just going to be wear and tear osteoarthritis. Then I I've showed the pictures to the patient to educate them, to tell them that look, these are your joints. This is what your joints look like. And I tell them, look, it's all about pain management and doing regular exercise. So even for the fingers, it's the same thing. You can see a hand occupational therapist and, you know, so they can give you joint specific exercises to improve the strength in your hands. Pain management is like a ladder loop. So you can you can do one tablet, you can do two tablets, you can do simple Panadol, you can do anti-inflammatories. I try to avoid morphine-based medications as much as possible, except for perhaps Norspan patch. Sometimes I would try uh, gabapentin or pregabalin which is the old-school anti-seizure uh, medications. The other drug of interest is uh, duloxetine, Cymbalta, which is an antidepressant. That has a very interesting background because it's, it's a serotonin noradrenaline uh, reuptake inhibitor. And it's actually very similar to tramadol, except minus the, the morphine side of things. Because if you look at tramadol, it has a same, similar effect where you're blocking the, the mu receptors, which is the morphine base, and then the serotonin and the noradrenaline. So if you if you just minus the the morphine side of things, then you're left with a SNRI, which is duloxetine, um, mirtazapine, and fluor, desvanilafaxine. You know, I, I'm surprised to see that a lot of patients have actually found that it's have been quite useful um, controlling their chronic pains. Is that is that pain plus mood, or is it is it? Uh, I guess you're exploring both both things. Well, I do give them a word of warning that it is an antidepressant. So when they Google it, so they don't get a shock that my doctors put me on antidepressants. Actually, so, so, they? they always think there's a side <laughs> of pain, don't they? <laughs> so I do give them plenty of warning. Yes, um, but no, actually, just for the joint pain itself. Okay, okay, that's, a, that's a very interesting point to make. But what is the value of topical using topical anti-inflammatories, if any? Do, do you have any, do you ever use topical anti-inflammatories? Sometimes I try to offer it, but I found 
that on, in my clinical practice, it's not been that useful at all. I used to prescribe capsaicin cream a lot uh, okay. in my initial practice. So this is a chili-based um, cream. Yes. It's, it's meant to work as an anti-neuropathic agent, um, but a lot of the patients I gave it to, it, it's, it, it causes a lot of irritation to their skin. It stung yeah. them. And if, if they touch their eyes, it really burns their eyes because it's basically chili. So that because it started to become really unpopular, I've started to um, not prescribe it as frequently. Sometimes I try lignocaine gels. They mm. tend to be a little bit expensive. But mm. again, I tell them you can just dab it and it will just give them a few hours of relief. And that's more for the fingers? or More for the fingers. That's the small joints. Yeah. Okay. I guess uh, there are times when you may even refer the patient on to a surgeon and, and start considering joint replacement. Is that something that you, you entertain? For the... For the hands, if there is very severe arthritis, I would. For the larger joints, yes. For the hip joint, for the knee joint, I'd say, well, look, we've got to do your non-weight-bearing exercises and, you know, see how far we can come. Um, and then eventually, if if the, all the conservative me- measures don't go well, then I would offer the, uh, refer them to the surgeon. Yes. And your point about the exercise is to increase the strength, strength of the hand, strength around the, the pelvic girdle. Strength around the. That's exactly the, right. Yeah. So for the large joints, I I suggest non weight bearing exercises. So non weight bearing exercises are like just walking in water, where you submerge your body in the water and you and you're not putting any pressure on your joints. Okay. And and even just walking in the water will help because if you look at a joint, for example, a knee joint, it's not only the bones that deteriorate. It's the ligaments, it's the muscles, it's the whole package. Yes. And that's what I tell everybody. It's not just, when you do the x-ray, you're just seeing the bones, yes. but you don't yes. see the muscles, the tendons, they're all worn off. So all the wasting that goes on. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's in your experience, uh, I, I suspect there's always resistance. If you are suggesting exercise, even if it's like that non-white bearing, there's always resistance, I think, from patients to do very much. But what, what's your experience with that? How successful has that sort of approach been to, to I think. I think I have found that people are very receptive because once they understand what's wrong with their joints, and, and particularly in my rooms, um, I share with Rez, Rez Rahim in, in, in Berwick. He, yes. He's got a very nice room where he's put a large television and that's connected to the computer. And I actually use that, compu- that television too to actually show them the x-rays to say, this is what your knee looks like. Yes. We've got to do something about it. So once yes. they are very well educated, Yes. Because a lot of times they don't understand how bad their joints are until yes. someone shows them. Yes. Sometimes I Google them and show, look, this is what a normal knee looks like. And this is what your knee looks like. So they understand. To be very confronting, I think, can't it when patients actually look at, <laughs> they look at what their joint is like. Yeah. Or an x-ray of their chest or in a different setting or whatever it might be. It's, it's quite confronting. It's certainly, it's a way of convincing patients to get on. It's, yeah. And, but I have found it that they really appreciate it. I even show them their MRIs, their CT scans. And I tell them, look, this is where the disc bulges. This is where your arthritis. Just telling them, just showing them on the screen that this is what the problem is. It gives them that sense of motivation. And I've, and, and the feedback I get that, oh, I had no idea what my joint look like and yes. they are very receptive even telling them i tell them up front that look analgesia is half the story but exercises is really you know the main treatment that you need to do but so have you had have you had success with uh, you know a particular physiotherapy group or uh, you know just guiding people with those sorts of exercises i wonder how hard it is to 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 introduce patients to someone that can help them with that you know like if they're water-based exercises aqua aerobics or you know w- whatever it might be uh, like, have you had difficulty establishing contact with people that will help your patients? 
So I have been approached by a few physiotherapists, um, particularly at my Wargal rooms. Yes. Um, and, and again, it depends on the type of physiotherapy they need. Do they need, you know, hip or knee exercises, which is mm. a lot easier. And even if they don't have, find a good physio, I tell them, look, walking in the water is all you need to do. Or bike riding at home. Again, it's a similar concept. You're taking the weight off your hip and knee joints and you're, and you're just going to do this rotational movement, which is exactly what you need mm. to strengthen the bones and to strengthen the joints up. I found that hand therapists are a little bit more tricky um, because, you know, the A, I think it's pretty challenging uh, and it's a sort of a very niche area. But again, you know, I, I try my best. I say, look, you can, you, you don't have to stick with one, but what, whichever one can give you decent exercises to improve your function of your hands would be the way to go. So looking back at a patient's life, someone who's maybe in their 70s and they've come to you and they've now got bad osteoarthritis in their knees or hips, do you, do you think that patient's progress might have been assisted much earlier on with a trip to a podiatrist, a review of their biomechanics? Or do you think that perhaps it was inevitable that some degree of arthritis was going to form? And I'm not referring here to someone that was running marathons or was an AFL footballer, you know, just just our average person. Do, you know, do you think we're lacking that early on? People, you know, should we be doing sort of biomechanical checks in uh, in someone's earlier life to sort of uh, and look at the yes. shoe, we get their arches sorted out? I think that's a very interesting question, uh, Luke, because I think arthritis in your joints is multifactorial. I, I suppose you know the 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 type of shoes we wear our body posture yes. do play a role. Yes. There's a lot of belief that genetics also play a role in this area too. Sometimes, Luke, that uh, these patients could also have subtle inflammatory arthritis throughout their whole life yeah. and they've just been left with burnt out joints Right. by the time they have reached 70. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's uh, I don't I think there will be a straightforward answer for this mm. um, other than saying that, look, it's really multifactorial. Yeah. And a but huge, I would say, a huge problem. I would say, yeah. Okay. But I would say that, you know, maintaining a healthy lifestyle, keeping in check, at least one-off podiatry referral, particularly if they're diabetic who have decreased sensation in their feet, would be absolutely essential. Well, thank you for those those insights. What what about at the inflammatory? That's the mechanical group we've dealt with. What about the inflamm- your approach to the inflammatory uh, arthropathy? So how do you how do you manage those? Suppose you've you've sort of drilled down and you have a diagnosis of, of whichever inflammatory arthropathy it might be. It might be psoriatic. It might be SLE. It might be rheumatoid. It might be some angst bond. What's your sort of you know basic sort of approach to the medical management of those patients? So one of the ways, Luke, that I try to tease out whether this is going to be inflammatory or mechanical um, is I actually, if I'm sort of sitting on the fence, I sometimes just give them prednisolone 15 milligrams for two weeks. And I just say, look, give it a try. If this improves your stiffness in the morning, then there's a chance that this is actually an inflammatory arthritis. I've had a lot of people with normal bloods, normal MRI, um, and still have stiffness in the morning responded really well to prednisolone. So it, it probably means that they had very subtle inflammatory arthritis that is just not showing the blood test and it's not showing in the imaging. Uh, and and these patients are relatively easy to treat because once we know that the prednisolone responds, then we can try a gentle anti-inflammatory drug such as Plaquenil. And, uh, and then they actually improve their quality of life because they don't have the stiffness in their hands anymore. And then I, I describe the treatment of inflammatory arthritis as if you're stepping on the ladder. We can go up the ladder, we can go down the ladder. If I have somebody who's not in childbearing years uh, and I'm and I, they've got fairly aggressive stiffness in the morning, I would start them in methotrexate, you know, and obviously going through what, the whole hepatitis screen and checking yes. their x-ray. What, what, what dose do you start with? 
Uh, we start, uh, I would start with 10 milligrams a week, can go up to 20 milligrams a week. I would normally stop at 20 milligrams. And if they need a little bit more than that, then we would, then we would go over either plaquenil, sulfazalazine. Uh, I very rarely use Arava, um, which is a leflunamide, which is another uh, medication that we can use in inflammatory arthritis. The reason why I try to avoid, I personally try to, try to avoid the combination is I found particularly in the elderly group, 70s, 80s, it is just too suppressive to the bone marrow. Okay. And, and the whole idea of putting them on the 20 milligrams of methotrexate and the additional medication is to actually work them up for biological therapies. And, and the current Medicare criteria is you need to be on 20 milligrams of methotrexate and, and another DMART, it could be Plaquenil, Arava, whichever one, for three months. And if they fail that you know, with stiffness and it raises inflammatory markers, then they would could be they could be started on biological therapies. Mm. It's 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 a it's always a problem for us to to you know look, we've got this criteria that we have to follow, and I guess when these drugs uh, the biologics are cheaper, we're going to mm. see a change in this decision. Uh, so yes. hierarchy, we might be able to use these products a lot easier because I think a lot of us would probably like to step into biologic therapy a lot faster than we're allowed to. Yeah, that's exactly right. There are some there's some patients that I come across and you just feel straight away that I think your arthritis is so aggressive yes. that we should really focus on the biologics very, very soon. And I have those right away. Yes. straight away. And I'm sure you see the same thing in we your do. gastric bulge. We do. Yeah, we do. You know, and sometimes you can uh, acquire these by compassionate dosing and so forth. But it, it, it's a problem. You know, it's it's a problem not overstepping that mark, that guideline that we have from, from Medicare. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult one at times. But uh, I think we've seen this before with other drugs that uh, eventually the prices decrease and then the decision is, okay, you can use that drug straight up now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we saw that with PPIs and all sorts of other things in our, you know, gastroenterology. Um, when we talk about, um, you know, like joint counselling, um, like that's very helpful, the discussion you've had. With joint counselling, is there another aspect to that, um, you know, beyond what we've we've been talking about? It's, it's actually basically what it is, is to yeah, yeah. make the patients understand yes. what the joint is going through. Because I think, I think pictures that, I really do believe that picture says a thousand words and you just show them their x-ray. They look, this is your knee. And they can relate because they are dealing with it day and night. Yes. They're seeing, the, they're, they're waking up with it. They're going to bed with it. They're, you know, getting up, up in the middle of the night with it. So as soon as they see the x-ray, oh, they go, oh, this is what's going on. Yeah, we and are. just knowing, I found that it's, you can see that little spark in their eyes that they go, oh, this is what's happening to me. Oh, because pain is a really terrible thing. You can't walk. You, you don't have any quality of life. So they, they, I found it from my personal experience, it's been they really appreciate it and they really become on board on on whatever management you offer. But so I think we've seen in this uh, conversation with you just your incredibly good conversation skills and how you know, patients uh, you know, gravitate towards you and as you as do your <laughs> colleagues, you know, and I can see um, you know how, how popular are they in in our location and, and in Warrigal. It's just. It's so nice to have you sort of working in our area and have you to refer to. And I, just before we close, I'd like to ask you your best advice, best advice you were ever given as a, as a young doctor or medical student. Just share that. Share those pearls of wisdom with us, Mercy. Just follow your passion. Don't be worried about what's going to happen. You do your, uh, follow the career that you really enjoy. <laughs> <Love> <laughs> <them>. <laughs> That's what I tell young doctors. Well, because I, I think they, 
they get quite worried about, you know, how would they get a job and how would they get into a training program? I said, don't worry. You love cardiology. Go for cardiology. Do it. <laughs> follow your passion. Yeah, follow your heart. <laughs> follow your heart. <laughs> Thank you so I think much. that's probably the best advice I've given them. Don't Thank worry you. about the jobs. Just do whatever you like to do. Thank you so much. Opportunities always come. Really appreciate you being on the on the uh, <laughs> the conversation with me. So much, so nice. Thank you. Thank you very much, Luke. Thank you for joining me in this conversation with Mertzer today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Next week, we will continue the conversation and uh, discuss practical tips for fibromyalgia and much more. Please join us then. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au.